The Christian faith in North America has reached a critical juncture. Thousands of believers have begun to drift away from the major creeds and confessions of historic Christianity in favor of a more inclusive, societally acceptable ideology that favors tolerance, social activism, and public policy over personal repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Within this movement, skepticism about the Bible abounds, and scripture that seems out of step with contemporary values are either explained away or dismissed. In fact, certain scriptural subjects such as the atonement, gender and sexual issues, the lordship, and even the divinity of Jesus get reframed as either unimportant, misunderstood, or even dangerous. So is it possible to be a Christian that denies the infallibility of Scripture, the divinity of Jesus, the doctrine of atonement, and the necessity of personal repentance and exclusive faith in Christ? Is it possible to reframe the identity of Jesus as primarily a social activist and the Christian faith as primarily a self-actualizing movement that's just one path among many, and still refer to yourself as a Christian? I mean, can I just be a doctor if I'm the one that decides what it means to be a doctor? Welcome, everybody, to the Beards and Bible Podcast, a podcast about beards and Bible. I have to change my voice inflection because I feel like it's getting old to say the same thing every single time. So you got to mix yeah. it up a little bit. That will definitely that will definitely get old a lot faster. <laughs> <laughs> beards and Bible? I don't know. I think uh, I think it's interesting to hear certain people's and voice inflections where it's almost like they're asking a question as they're saying a statement. Like, yeah. have you uh, have you ever heard somebody from? I don't know why I pick on people from California. And if you're listening and you're from California, thank you for listening. Um, but it's interesting. My brother moved out to California a couple of years ago, and now when he says things, it's like he'll say them as he's saying them. It's almost like he's asking a question. He's like, "So the other day." I was driving and <laughs> and I was driving down the 405. And I'm like, wait, are you are you asking me if you were driving down the 405 or are you telling me you were driving? Down? Why are you why are you, why are we talking about where you were driving to? He loves talking about those things being from California. Yeah, voice inflection I feel like makes makes or breaks a conversation, you know. Yeah. And it's interesting. Yeah. yeah, it is. How you doing, Gabe? I'm good. I'm good. I'm awake and uh, it's uh, it's a Friday here as we're recording this at 5 a.m. and looking forward to closing out another week of teaching high school. And yeah, it's been mm. it's been a good week. And do you give tests on Fridays because you're too sleepy to teach? Um, I don't really have a set day, but yet yeah, so I do have uh, memorization work that my students have to do, and then I usually uh, let them take that that quiz on on a series of verses that they're memorizing. And then we watch an episode of, you may have seen The Chosen. Adventures in Odyssey. Yeah, Adventures in Odyssey. <laughs> <laughs> but we wa- we've been watching it through, um, we watch it through The Chosen. Uh, I think it's directed by Dallas Jenkins. But yeah, really cool, so good. Really cool series. Yeah. So, so my, good. Kids have, my kids have really latched onto that and they, they um, beg for the next, next episode. But Yeah, man. So Friday's awesome. kind of chill. Friday's kind of chill. Yeah, when I was a teacher, my philosophy was, I have taught you all week. 
and I've worked all week to teach you. And so Friday is your day for you to show me what you've learned. So here is your quiz. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so Fridays, I always liked them. There were always jean Fridays too in our school. We got to wear blue jeans, yeah. which was such a big deal. So yeah, yeah man. Well, how about cool. you? How are you? How are the, um, the baby? Um, good. Babies are good. We uh, Before we got on this call, I was talking about how my kids were up through the night. I've got three young kids and a four-year-old had leg cramps in the middle of the night. So that was fun dealing with that. But uh, we're good. All is well in the Brooker house. Uh, it's been a busy week, though, just with church stuff as we start getting in the holidays, which is crazy that we're kind of talking about that now holidays and end of the year it just seems like this year has been so weird and yeah it's, blur. it's kind of that weird time of year where you walk into any lowe's or any department store and you see skeletons and santa clauses on the same yeah. you know, like, <laughs> you're like wait a second what is going on yeah 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 like just yesterday it feels like it was labor day and next tuesday is the election mm, and yeah. um yeah, there's all sorts of thoughts and feelings and emotions that are being had about that, I think, in my church. And that's been fun to kind of navigate through. Do, do you want to do a prediction on the election? I mean, just a good old friendly wager. Like, <sighs> we, don't, we, don't, we don't have to. We don't have to venture. Um, here's what I've been telling people. You ready? Because I don't, I don't think I'm, if any... Uh, I don't think I have enough faith in the human race right now <laughs> to predict <laughs> what I think we should do at the election. But here's what I've been saying to people. Mm. I said, however the election turns out, I'm just hoping and praying it's a landslide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like whoever wins, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Because if it's a close mm -hmm. race and like, it's like, well, it looks like we're not going to know for the next, you know, two, three months. And then it goes into this like soap opera. Mm hmm of trying to, like, I just, I can't, Yeah. like, I'm, I'm just going to blow up my TV and, you know, blow up my internet router and live off the grid and turn Amish or something. Yeah. Was it the 2000 election uh, with George Bush and Al Gore that there yes. were like, all these hanging chads and stuff like you never in my life had heard of hanging chads. And then I know all about hanging chads now, but <laughs> it, was, it was like, yeah, it was, and that was, that was nothing. I think. I think you're absolutely right. And it's really sad that we are saying that in the United States of America that um, we're really hoping that the victor wins by a landslide because, um, yeah, things are tense right now. And you can kind of yeah. very palpable. Yeah, it is, man. I'm just, I think we just need to be praying, you know, for, I think we need to be praying for America. I think we need to be praying for really, uh, there's a lot of people that have put all of their hopes and their dreams in their candidate on both sides and one of them is going to lose. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be a tremendous amount of people that are going to be exceptionally disillusioned and think the world is ending as we know it because my guy didn't lose. And that's super sad to me because mm -hmm. King Jesus is still on his throne. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just sad. Mm -hmm. to me. Like I talked to a guy yesterday on the phone for about 45 minutes and he was just like, you know, saying like, if this election goes this way, we're headed towards world war three and you know, the end of the, the end of the world as we know it. And I'm just like trying to suggest to him, like, man, I, I still feel like Jesus is still King and we still have a hope and a future because of him. And mm -hmm. 
I think that's why this guy gets a little disillusioned by politics because we put so much hope and faith and put stakes in politics as much as we do. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked about that on several podcast episodes. Yeah. But I guess, I guess next, next podcast we'll know. We will know. Well, maybe we can unpackage that a little bit and. Maybe maybe we'll be recording this from a bunker uh, <laughs> hidden, <laughs> hidden two miles below the surface of the earth as we're eating our yeah. and meals ready to eat or something. So, mm. Well, this, this, uh, this podcast today is dedicated to a topic that um, was not one I was ever intending to do, but um, kind of got dropped in my lap. Um, a, a friend of mine, his name's Dr. David Young. He pastors a church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Actually, Gabe, you remember when you were in my wedding, the church that my wife and I got married at? Yes. Um, North Boulevard Church of Christ in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Uh, the pastor of that church, Dr. David Young, has um, really taken um, Corey Trimble, who is our lead pastor at the Murfreesboro campus. Um, that's a sister church of the, the church that I pastor and myself kind of under his wing um just a really cool guy he's been been in ministry for years and years and years and he wrote this little book um it's called a grand illusion and uh it was sitting in Corey's office the other day and uh cory and i were talking and he goes hey man have you ever read this book i was like no he goes you should pick it up it's a good read and i was like all right and um I opened it up and I started reading and I felt like I was reading. Um, I was reading about all those people that I went to Christian college with and all those people that I went to graduate school with and all those people that I had grown up in church with that have veered off into a form of Christianity that looks very different from the biblical faith that we were all taught. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I couldn't put this book down because I was like, Oh my goodness, like this, this is, this is exactly what it is that I've been concerned about. And what he was describing was um, a form of Christianity that uh, is Christian by name, but the reality is it's, it's been redesigned to be more palatable to kind of modern sensibilities. And um, man, I I just, I, I felt so like convicted about ways my own faith has been influenced by this. But at the same time, I felt very passionate about saying like, man, I need to do everything I need to do to make sure that, um, you know, I'm speaking a, a, a form of the faith that is biblical and that is um, accurate um, to make sure that like we, we as pastors and we as leaders and we as believers are really making sure we're contending for the faith as, as the Bible tells us to do. Um, so, Gabe, you and I were talking before we got on this podcast. I mean, you, you've seen this in certain aspects in in the lives of people around you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's it's you know we as humans um, just have a propensity to uh, we want the insurance policy and the 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 I don't know placation is that a word that comes along with being um, attached to a faith, attached to a religion, attached to a savior but also mm-hmm. at the same time weaving our own fleshly desires into that. So mm-hmm. that's that's true in the first century. It's true today that mm-hmm. um, we will um, kind of make our faith in our own image, so to speak, so that we can um, do what we really want to do. Mm-hmm. 
and that's that's an ancient problem but sure it's it's not a new thing but yeah so if, if you're listening and you're like man what what is it they're talking about what in the world is progressive christianity it, it is a movement in north american christianity primarily um it's pretty much dead and gone in europe and we'll talk about that here in a minute um and it really seeks to make the christian faith more um kind of user-friendly to to modern sensibilities. And it's really based around questions um, and feelings and, and angst more than anything. So questions like, um, can you really trust the Bible? You know, there's contradictions and there's scientific inaccuracies in certain biblical stories. So can you really trust the Bible? Um, questions like, how could a loving God uh, condemn the people that he loves to eternal torment? Um you know, so the doctrine of hell, that's a, that's a thing that this movement really struggles with. What about other religions? Um, aren't they all basically saying the same thing? If somebody's sincere in their faith in another religion, how could God ever send somebody like that to hell? Um, but really the linchpin issue, I think, around this movement is the sexual ethic of the Bible mm-hmm. and how the Bible specifically prohibits same-sex relationships and so really the rub, I think that this, this movement is attractive to a lot of people is we have a society that says any teaching that prohibits same-sex relationships is a form of hate speech and intolerance. Mm-hmm. And so progressive Christianity basically says, well, maybe Christianity doesn't teach that. Maybe we've just misunderstood the Bible's teaching on that, or maybe those portions of the Bible aren't true. Maybe Paul isn't... Um, you know, Paul isn't Jesus. I feel like I've heard that a million times. Mm-hmm. So you can't really trust Paul. Um, and so that's that's really the the big linchpin issue. And then things like the church's job being, uh, you know, social activism, you know, political issues like race, gender equality, economic inequity. And so it, it's been hinged and tied up a lot with like leftist ideologies. Mm-hmm. And so as a disciple, your job is not really to be a person that practices personal faith and repentance in Christ, but rather you're an activist that rages against, you know, (laughs) rages against all the things that leftists rage against. And so your form of your Christianity and faith is to go to protest and hold up signs and tweet against corporations and legislations and and specifically big orange man. Everybody hates big orange man right now. <laughs> so you've got to hate big orange man too. And you gotta you gotta tell everybody how much you hate big orange man. And mm. um that's your faith in a nutshell. That's how you practice out your faith. You hate big orange man as much as humanly possible. So um all this sounded familiar, does this ring any bells? Yeah, I mean it really does it takes a lot of, like you said, leftist ideologies. And what what do I mean by that? Kind of well really really kind of socialist at best, Marxist at worst ideologies and kind of blends them and mates them together with your faith in, in the God of the Bible and, um, and says that the state is the agent of uh, the social reforms, so to speak, that are detailed within the Bible, the, the, the calls of, of um, justice and mercy, that now the state is the agent and the, is the executive of those aspects of your faith. Yeah. And that is, that is, that is really, it's Marxism. When you think about it, is that, it, that all things are fair. Everyone has all things in, in common. That's wonderful. And that's how the disciples live their lives in the book of Acts. But that was, 
out of the volition of the Holy Spirit living in them. It wasn't because you voted a certain way and a politician in the United States of America um, legislated that everyone pay their, quote, fair share. Yeah. Um, that doesn't end well. It really doesn't. You can't legislate morality that yeah, way. Yeah, and, and I think what's interesting is is a lot of terms like the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm, I'm teaching the book of Matthew right now, and that's like Matthew's uh, phrase that he records Jesus saying all the time. A, a lot of groups in progressive Christianity will kind of grab onto that phrase, the kingdom of God, and almost use that to say um, <laughs> socialist ideologies. That's the kingdom, right? That's the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Like when we're we're fighting up for the little man and we're standing up for the oppressed and we're doing all those things. And and listen, like God is a God of justice. God is a God of mercy. Mm-hmm. He does want us to stand for the oppressed. He does want us to um, address social issues. But those are a byproduct of individuals who are committed to Christ and mm-hmm. living in personal holiness and repentance. It's not a byproduct of us forcing people to vote a certain way or, or um, you know, taking social reform and making that the whole aim of the Christian church. Because you don't see that in the early church, do you? No, they, I mean, politics was kind of a non-issue for in the book of Acts. I mean, from what we can tell, they were there. Um, they were, they were uh, law-abiding citizens of the Roman Empire, so to speak. But, um, yeah, they didn't make that the forefront really they put more emphasis on the leaders and the pillars within their movement than they did uh, Roman law and, and Roman governance process. You know, granted they didn't really have a whole, a whole lot of stake in that. They didn't, it wasn't a, it wasn't a democracy or a representative Republic like we live in now, but um, still whenever the state um, becomes a moral agent, especially as a secular state, whenever you try to make that a moral agent, an agent of morality and um, imposing morality on the governed, um, it doesn't end well. I mean, even in the best, in the best of conditions, that's not going to end well. Yeah. 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 Well, that's one aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's certainly the one I think that we see being paraded in front loud and proud. And, and the, the two ways that the faith is woven into that is Jesus is painted as more of a social activist than he is the divine son of God and Messiah. Mm-hmm. And so you hear people say that all the time, you know, Jesus overturned tables in the temple. Jesus was upset and Jesus protested and Jesus raged against, you know, the societal injustices of the time. And so, so much is focused on the fact that Jesus as a man spoke against injustice Therefore, we are too. But that is like such a fraction of the identity of Jesus that informs the Christian faith. Um, well, I think we'll get Christians. Christians just have a tendency to love adjectives, anyways, in front of, you know, like we see all kinds of adjectives like Nazarene, and you know, I I use the one. Um, uh, there's there's a a sign not far from my house that I pass. <laughs> on a regular basis and it has like six adjectives in front of it and then it finally ends with the word church um it's like we just love we love to use all these adjectives because it can kind of encapsulate for us what we're all about and and where we're going and so that people can drive by or people can see a website and say oh i identify with that you know yeah, yeah. resonates with me so i belong there yeah but this progressive thing is just it's another adjective sure. um, when really in the book of acts <clears throat> 
we were described as the way five times. We were described as Christians three times, if I'm not mistaken. And then Nazarenes, those are really just simple, simple words. They just, they don't carry a lot of adjectives with them. It's just the way, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that's going to be something we're going to talk about how Jesus is the way. Um, and that's something that kind of goes counter to what this progressive Christianity is teaching, it seems like. Sure. Yeah. Well, let's get into certain attributes of the movement. So again, this is all taken from, from uh, David's book, um, A Grand Illusion, which I highly recommend you pick up. But really the first attribute of this movement of progressive Christianity is a lowered view of the Bible. So a view of scripture that basically takes all the things about the Bible that have historically been seen as true and authoritative and kind of um, reinterprets it to say, well, the Bible is not from God. It's a human book expressing people's experiences of God. Um, You'll sometimes hear people say, well, the apostle Paul said that, but what did Jesus say? And, And the assumption is that behind both of these expressions Ultimately, we are the ones as modern, uh, enlightened minds that get to judge which parts of the Bible are true and which Bible uh, passages are authoritative. And that's all based on the fact that we have 21st century Western sensibilities. Mm -hmm. And so conveniently, the parts of the Bible that get reinterpreted or or that say, you know, maybe this this isn't true, usually are dealing with a sexual ethic usually they're dealing with the exclusivity of Jesus and usually it deals with the concept of miracles in the Bible. So those three get conveniently um, explained away or said, well, this has been misunderstood or these parts just aren't true. Um, But the parts that are true are the parts about loving your neighbor, the parts about um, showing justice to the widow and the orphans. All of these parts are emphasized and, and really what that does is it just lowers the Bible and makes us the final Supreme Court over what's true and what's not true. Hmm. Yeah, I mean that's a slippery slope to uh, to open up and um, and and be able to to I mean do kind of like the Thomas Jefferson thing and and yeah. cut out all the miracles and cut out all the things that are moral absolutes within the Bible that apply to you. Um, that mm-hmm. is a slippery slope. That I mean, where where does it end with that? Where does you know, who has the authority to, to chop different aspects out of it. Yeah. And it's crazy too, man. Like there's definitely people who are um, like open and upfront about how they do this. So, so guys like Brian McLaren or, mm-hmm. you know, Rob Bell, which Rob Bell's like, he's fallen off the wagon altogether. I don't even know if he considers himself a Christian now, but he was definitely doing this before he um, kind of went full on, Gnostic, whatever he is now. Mm. And so there's people that are like open up front about how they do this. And there's other people who are like, just kind of suggest that they do this. So like one popular mm. teacher by the name of Jen Hatmaker. Have you ever heard of Jen Hatmaker? No, I haven't. So Jen Hatmaker was like the darling child of women's ministry in the Southern Baptist movement. And um, she would do all these conferences and all this stuff. And, and like women just loved her. And Jen Hatmaker would suggest that basically like, you know, man, anytime you uh, 
take a teaching of the Bible and it like makes anybody feel bad, then you're not interpreting right. Hmm. <laughs> and it was just, it was very, very, very just like, you know, kind of suggesting at this. It wasn't really um, saying it out loud. And people were kind of like, man, what, what is, what is she doing? What is she? Um, and I'm trying to find this part of the book, but basically in 2016, she just kind of came out and said, um, I'll just read it. After developing friendships with several gays and lesbians and subsequently reconsidering what the Bible says, Jen Hatmaker announced to the world her conclusion that same-sex relationships are biblical and holy. Oh, wow. And so she basically just came out with saying, hey, like I just decided because I've gotten to know a lot of uh, gay and lesbians that now their relationship is, is endorsed by scripture. Mm. But it was a slow, steady, um, it, it was a slow, steady shift that happened in her to get her to that point. And I had to start with looking at the teachings of the Bible on sexual ethics as, well, they're not, you know, it says this, but I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's been 2000 years. <laughs> yeah. And the yeah, world's changed and yeah, yeah and all that stuff. And, and I and, think that's such a dangerous thing when we start doing that. I think sometimes what we ha- what we tend to do is we overlay our um, we overlay the evolutionary theory on top of our interpretation of scripture, and unknowingly sometimes we think um, you know that because m- man has evolved over the course of two to three to four thousand years, that so has morality and our ability to to govern ourselves and. Um, you know, we've invented refrigerators and, you know, we have all these little things that we'll say about Mm -hmm. the Bible that, um, will, will help us dismiss portions of the Bible as, um, no longer applicable and no, no longer binding on us because, um, you know, we've evolved past that, you know, it's just, but yeah, that's the, the sexual, sexual ethics, I believe is going to be, um, the line in the sand for the body of Messiah and the coming probably the next five to 10 years, we'll see yeah. um, that that will create a vast schism in the body of Messiah that will determine, I believe, the sheep from the goats, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're kind of already seeing that now. I mean, you're seeing mm-hmm. that in specifically the Methodist church, and we'll talk about kind mm-hmm. of mainline denominations, how they've shifted towards this and kind of what's happened as a result of that. Um so the second thing that, that David Young points out is that in this movement, subjective feelings are emphasized over absolute truth. Feelings. <laughs> feelings. <laughs> what is that you're singing? <laughs> I don't, what is that from? Nothing more than feelings. I don't know. I've heard oh, that before. <laughs> Once you look that up and I'll read this part of the book. Okay. So you'll you'll sometimes hear people say things in this movement like, this verse just doesn't resonate with me. And and when they say that, what they're doing is basically affirming that that verse can't be true because they don't feel like it's true. So if you take the doctrine of hell, for example, um, progressives will define love to mean it's just acceptance or it's even indulgence where you're allowing someone to do what it is that they feel like they need to do. And so when someone defines love that way, they leave themselves unable to accept the 
things that Jesus says about hell, which is ironic because what progressives often do is say, I'm a red letter Christian. I only believe the things that Jesus said. Um, but Jesus says a lot about hell. Um, mm -hmm. And by doing this, it's a misunderstanding of the true nature of Christian love and it undermines the justice of God. And mm -hmm. so when, when you hear people playing these interpretive games with scripture about like, um, you know, the way that this feels or the way that, you know, this resonates with us and our human experience. And they argue about the trajectories of scripture and kind of the grand narrative of scripture. You, you can be sure that somebody's trying to make the Christian faith align with kind of self-inspired sentimentalism. That's David Young's term. Hmm. And it's really what it's centered around, you know, that yeah. the sexual ethic of the Bible has to be incorrect because Man, I've got gay and lesbian friends, and they're wonderful people. And I can never imagine why the Bible would say that what they're doing is wrong. Yeah, well, I think we live in an age, too, where victimhood is the trump card. Yeah. Um, you know, if you can make yourself out to be a victim, then everyone else has to cater to that. Mm -hmm. And that that's interesting. Uh and it's going back to Marxism. I mean, that was that was the crux of Marxism as well, was that you have the bourgeoisie and you have the proletariat, and the proletariat are the victims, right? And so you mm -hmm. you kind of you harness that v sense of victimhood to um, carry out a an agenda, a greater agenda. And right. yeah, I think within the broader Christian movement, there's a lot of quote unquote victims, right? That um, you know, like people of certain sexual preferences that are thinking, well, I'm, I'm ostracized by my faith because I have this preference. Therefore I'm a victim. And yeah. so that becomes the trump card. And, you know, we have to, we have to cater to that. Well, and I think what's so, so like, man, this is a very, very, very like sensitive issue in the church right now. Like you said, this is, this is the dividing line in the church. This, you know, the sexual ethic of the Bible, specifically in how the church has treated um, the LGBT community. Mm. Like we've not, we've not always done it right as the church. Mm. There are times when we have been absolutely filled with hate and then we've used the Bible to justify our hate. And for those things, we need to repent because we need to speak truth in love and we need to be, um, willing to treat people like Jesus treated people, even people who are living in sin and we disagree with. But with that, we cannot let our subjective feelings uh, trump the truth of God's word. You, you can love somebody and accept them into your life and at the same time still hold on to the doctrines of scripture that teach that this act of sex is reserved for a man and a woman in the context of marriage and all other practices of sex are not biblical. And that's not what God has for us mm -hmm. just because you're friends with somebody and you see their lifestyle and they feel their lifestyle is okay. And you feel like, man, because I'm seeing that they feel that way, that means I have to accept how they feel. That does not win out over the truth of God's word. And anytime we feel like it does, we're basically falling victim to the spirit of the age. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
and, and I've seen this. I, I feel like I, this is the, again, this is the one thing I just keep seeing over and over and over again. People saying, surely Jesus did not mean for us to exclude and to be mean towards and to belittle and to demean and keep people from this orientation out of the body of Christ. And it's almost like saying that if we hold to what the scripture teaches, therefore we're, we're, we're somehow oppressing as well. Does that make sense? Like we're, we're guilty of being the oppressors Mm -hmm. in that whole social Marxist uh, dichotomy. There's the oppressors and there's the mm-hmm. oppressed. And if we hold to what the Bible says, these standards, then we suddenly become the uh, the oppressors because mm-hmm. there's a standard for what biblical truth is. Yeah. And ultimately, we it's like we hold the the keys of the kingdom. It's like we we are the ones mm. that would say you're in or you're out, and that's just not the case. That's not my job to say that. It's my job to teach what holiness is, what obedience looks like, what discipleship looks like to our master. But it's not my job to say you're in or you're out. Um, it's my job to call out sin if I see it, and I do it in a in a loving way, in a in a you know biblical way. Yeah. But yeah, I don't I don't hold that. I don't hold those keys. Um, well, we we hold the keys in the sense that we show people what the scripture says. Yeah, yeah. And ultimately, they they got to take it up with God. But as representatives of God, we cannot diminish his standard or lighten his standard or water down or dilute his standard just to make someone feel good Mm -hmm. because you can make them feel good in this life and in the life to come. If they're standing in before the judgment of God and we had something to do with that because we didn't want them to not like us Mm -hmm. then the blood's on our hands, (laughs) you know, I mean, that's, that's some serious stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So, First view, the first attribute we said, lower view of the Bible. Second attribute, subjective feelings emphasized over absolute truth. Third attribute, essential historic doctrines become open for reinterpretation. Um, challenging core doctrines of Christian orthodoxy of what is what this movement begins to do over time. So the scriptures teach that Jesus was crucified to atone for our sins. But many people in this movement tend to argue that Jesus's death was merely martyrdom, <laughs> hmm. that Jesus was martyred as a social activist, and that the whole idea of atonement, that there needed to be a sacrifice for our sins, I've heard some progressive writers say that that's teaching divine child abuse. Have you heard that? No, I haven't. Wow. Yeah, that like it's a it's an antiquated and a dangerous ideology to teach that. Um, God the Father had to punish God the Son for the sins of humanity. Why did he have to? He didn't have to punish any. Why does he have to punish? He's God. He doesn't have to punish. He's good. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So th- this idea of the atonement is kind of a hot button thing. Um, the whole idea of why did Jesus go to the cross? And you'll hear progressives say, well, he went to the cross because he, he challenged uh, <laughs> he challenged social injustices. And so he was martyred. And so as we challenge social injustices as well, we will be uh, ostracized and persecuted. But we can't make that stop us from standing up to the Pharisees in our day and age and make that stand up from, for the things that are right. Um, the, the scriptures claim Jesus is divine. That's an essential historic doctrine, that he's the son of God. But often progressives will overly emphasize the humanity of Jesus 
So they won't downright deny his divinity, but they will spend a lot more time speaking on his humanity and speaking on how he's an example for all of us as to how we are to live our lives, to be someone that's charitable and be someone that loves humanity and touches the leper and hangs out with the children and, and challenges the you know societal injustices. Um, but there's a whole lot less time talking about how he's coming back as reigning and ruling and conquering king. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in general, like the sinfulness of humanity is, is not just downplayed. Sometimes it's just flat out denied. Like this whole idea of sin nature. Yeah. And, and how we're sinners by both nature and choice. And, and here's what's interesting too. In a lot of these movements, you'll see people talking about societal sins like racism yeah, yeah, and all that stuff, but very little time spent talking about personal sense. Yeah. Like individual. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Isn't that kind of like humanism? Like, you know, we all innately, we can become good. We can fix mm-hmm. our problems ourselves. Um, if we all exert enough collective effort, um, which led, I believe to the building of a really big tower and book of Genesis, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, let's just make bricks. Um, but yeah, that sounds, it has the, the ring of humanism. That, Very much that so. Ultimately, if there are any collective sins in our society, it's because of people who are dogmatic, people who are fundamentalist or something. And, mm-hmm. and we need to, we need to do away with them. We need to, we need to cure them. Yeah. Which is so crazy, like these historic doctrines have been part of the Christian faith since, you know, the early church. And there were men and women that lost their lives for these tenets of the faith. The fact that Jesus is the son of God, the fact that, you know, the reason that so many of the early missionaries were martyred was not because they showed up and said, hey, we need to fix racism. The reason they were martyred is because they said repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand (laughs) and Mm. people didn't like that. So they killed him. So what do you do when you say there's no such thing as the sinfulness of humanity? Atonement isn't really atonement. Jesus didn't really die for your sins. And Jesus, by the way, wasn't really as much the son of God as he was a example for us as social activists. Mm -hmm. And the Bible is kind of, the Bible can be manipulated yeah. In, in certain ways to, yeah. Why do you need missionaries for that? Why do you need preachers for that? Um, I'll just read a very interesting uh, statistic. So the Episcopal Church, that is essentially like the poster child for this movement, hmm. um, all across the country in every single Episcopal Church in the entire United States of America, or excuse me, uh, even worldwide, there's only 25 foreign missionaries from the Episcopal Church worldwide. Wow. That's interesting. Because, <laughs> like, why do you need a missionary? Because <laughs> if you believe in Jesus, like, what does that do for you? Because everybody's going mm-hmm. to heaven anyway, and there's no reason to believe in him. There's no reason to not believe in him because your path is just as valid, right? Yeah. So all of these historic doctrines of the Christian church are essentially reinterpreted and they look suspiciously like what 21st century white elite uh, academics believe, Hmm. which is interesting because um, 
David Young makes the comment that this is essentially cultural imperialism because hmm. you won't find this kind of thought in Africa or South America or Southeast Asia. Like their historic Orthodox Christianity is alive and well and it's booming hmm. and disciple making movements are happening and churches are getting planted. The underground church is thriving and it has nothing to do with any of this silliness. It's like Jesus is king, God is real, the power of the Holy Spirit is at work, and the mm. church is booming. But where it is being um, watered down, reinterpreted, redefined, shifting to an emphasis more on these things, it's dying. Mm. Yeah. At an alarming rate. So, yeah, I wonder if it's, a, I always say, uh, too many calories and too much free time. <laughs> is, mm -hmm. You know, if you could trace a lot of America's problems back to that, you know, we just create these synthetic problems because we have too much free time and too many calories. Whereas you look <laughs> at people where survival is kind of on the forefront of their minds more so than, you know, like um, there isn't an abundance of free time. There isn't an abundance of calories. Um, their faith is real. Their faith is yeah. palpable and and it's, you can see the signs of that. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like the more comfortable and full our our we get in the in the full our bellies become, uh, our less potent our faith is as well. Yeah, it's almost like the people of Israel, right? They, mm -hmm. you know, God warns them of, hey, when you get really uh, content and things get good, you're going to be like, forget me. Yeah, yeah, same thing. That principle carries through. Yeah. So the next attribute of this movement is historic terms are redefined. So. Um, the ideologies of science are really pushed. It was so interesting as people say, I believe in science. Um, <laughs> that's such an interesting, there's so much packed into that. There's so many presuppositions packed into that, right? Because a lot of times when people say, I believe in science, they're not really saying they believe in science. They're saying, I believe in the ideology of physicalism or materialism. You know what I mean by that? Yeah. Sorry, I just can't get Nacho Libre out of my mind now. I believe, <laughs> I believe in science. <laughs> you have not been baptized. <laughs> yeah. uh, great movie, by the way. So this whole idea that um, science becomes the thing that we interpret everything through yeah. is actually not being intellectually uh, honest because science is an ideology. Um, science... So often we talk about this when we talk about Darwinism and, and how Darwinism, we, we take that theory out of its bounds and we use that theory to kind of, um, you know, do things it was never intended to do, like try to explain away the existence of God. Um, this is often what this movement does. And the most, the most, uh, um, the way that they do this the most is constantly reinterpreting the scriptures to keep up with this idea of science being the chief ethic that, that helps us interpret everything. Hmm. And so often when a progressive uses biblical language, they shift its meaning. So the resurrection becomes a metaphor instead of historic fact hmm. because of that thing. I believe in science. I only believe in, you know, the things I can see and touch and feel. And that's, you know, my rational 21st century mind telling me things. So the resurrection is a metaphor. It's still true. Mm -hmm. I still believe in it, but it doesn't have to be a historic fact for me to believe in it. I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say that or not. Yeah. Is this also, there's a trend, I think, um, to 
allegorize uh, yes. things like Noah's flood or the splitting Absolutely. of the Red Sea and things like that. Like, yep. like you know, you're kind of looked at, like, you take that literally still, you know, you're mm-hmm. kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, yep. or the creation story is another big one. We talked about that a couple episodes back. Absolutely. Yeah. So things like, uh, yeah. So like Jonah, the story of Jonah, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting. David Young tells us a very interesting story in this book, A Grand Illusion, about um, how so many uh, progressives speak on the story of Jonah as, you know, God choosing to show love to a people who are distant and far off from him. And they love that part of it. And they believe that part of it, right? God calls Jonah to speak a message of, of truth to a people far off from him. Uh, but then the fact that a big fish ate Jonah, no, <laughs> come on. But he says he talks about, <laughs> there was an African uh, that had spent his entire life on the river that had seen just incredible things dealing with fish and aquatic life on the river. And he had no problem believing in the fact that a, a big fish could eat a man hmm. because he'd seen things like that. But what he did struggle believing in the book of Jonah is why God would call a prophet of God to speak to another tribe. Hmm. That's the part of Jonah he struggled with. So what it's doing is it's essentially cultural and intellectual imperialism to say this part of Jonah isn't true because it doesn't make sense to my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, these historic terms like the resurrection, like the miracles in the Bible, um, holiness really becomes liturgy instead of sexual purity. It's the same language that's used and it's still saying, you know, I believe in the resurrection. I believe in holiness, but it's new meanings that are getting imported onto it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the biggest one is this idea of love. <laughs> so if we allow a 21st century definition of love to be imported back into historical biblical Christianity, we're going to end up with something very different than what the Bible teaches about love. So love in our day and age <laughs> means accepting and embracing whatever a person wants to you to accept and embrace. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like we made love a, a synonym of tolerance. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And tolerance, it doesn't even mean what tolerance used to mean. Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. But it's like, you know, if I if I went to my local Walmart and I passed out index cards and I had everyone write down a definition of love and I collected them all and read them, they'd all be vastly different from each other, mm-hmm. even though I live you know, here in Southern Alabama, we'd still have, but can you imagine going around the world and doing that with all these different worldviews and cultures and, and languages? Um, it'd be vastly different. So that's, it's a problem when you say, you know, it's, it all, it all just boils down to love because yeah. well, what, how do you define love? You know, we have to have a, a benchmark and a, and a reference point for what love is. Um, well, does, does love discipline? Does love punish? Does love, you know, give, does it take away? Does it, withhold what is that you know mm-hmm. well, i think love is sometimes a code word when people say like well it's all about love man that's just mm-hmm. a code word for the god i want to believe in is never going to tell me no yeah yeah it's code word for for leave me alone i don't want to repent of the sin that i'm living in sometimes mm-hmm. so love in the bible is putting the needs of others first it is being willing to sacrifice it's being willing to speak truth it's being willing to, well, I mean, first Corinthians 13, that's the love chapter, right? Mm-hmm. It's patient. It's kind. It, the Bible does not leave that definition open for interpretation. Mm-hmm. 
But in this movement, that term love typically gets misconstrued and twisted to basically mean you can't ever tell anybody they're wrong unless it's big orange man in the white house or it's society. When it comes to an individual though, to tell them that they need to repent, that's intolerant and that's hate speech and you can't do that. That's not love. Mm-hmm. And, and what we're doing when we say that is not really trusting in what the Bible says about love. We're basically bringing in our own definition to that. Yeah, I think it was, I think it's Benjamin Franklin that said, um, with, with in terms of poverty, he said, we should make people uncomfortable in their poverty. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I mentioned that to some of my students the other day. And I said, you know, when one of the, one of the most loving things you can do for someone, you know, that friend that's always borrowing money from you or, you know, that, um, that, that coworker that's always asking for another handout. One of the most loving things you can do that for that person is make them uncomfortable in their poverty so that mm-hmm. they will want to take initiative and get out of poverty. And, and some of my students kind of were like shocked by that statement. They said, how is that, how is that loving? Well, how is it loving to continue to, to, to give money to them and keep them in poverty? Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's almost like the opposite of loving. You're yeah. just trying to get them off your back. That's actually selfish on your part. Well, I think the same can be true for morality and and sin. I think it's really loving to make someone uncomfortable in sin. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, I think I think we don't do a good enough job of that sometimes in the United States of America of like people that we have a relationship with. Um, if they're living in unrepentant sin, it is our job to say, "Hey, I I actually can't sit across the table from you and eat with you because of this in your life." I'm really sorry. I love you. And I want to do that. But because you have this in your life, there, there's, there has to be distance here. Um, I have to make you uncomfortable in that sin, but I love you. And I might, I'm, I'm ready for you when you're ready to repent. I'm, I'm here with mm. open arms. Yeah. I, I see what you're saying. I, I think that, um, I think that the nuances of that really has to be fleshed out. I think in everybody's individual context, mm-hmm. Like, right. I mean, like the, the teaching of God's word is 100% for all people in all places and all times. God's truth does not change or bend on context. But I think that there have been times when, because that truth has been um, preached and exercised in a way that's harsh and that mm-hmm. people delight in using it to exclude and to um, suppress Mm-hmm. that that's actually why this movement of progressive Christianity has grown because yeah. we've not spoken and lived out God's truth in a kind and consistent way. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I, I always say, you know, relationship is the precursor to, to all of that. Yeah. You know, like I think, um, and, and really, you know, it's, I'm, I'm kind of at a point too where I'm kind of fleshing this out myself, but in my own faith, but, um, I don't know how much um, obligation I have to go to my neighbor six doors down from me in my neighborhood that I barely even know and say, hey, you're living in sin. You know, I, I don't mm, I don't know that no. I'm called to do that. I think if there's um, people that I have a relationship with at my workplace or, you know, at our congregation, I think that that definitely is a good context for for that and speaking correction in, in a loving way. But um, well, it's interesting. First know. Corinthians, uh, I think it's chapter, I can't remember which chapter and verse, maybe you could 
quote me on that, but it, uh, Paul makes a very interesting statement. He says, what business have I to judge outsiders? Yeah, yeah. He's like, they don't, I mean, they don't know that their right hand from their left, basically. You know, they don't, they don't know what's sin and what's not sin. But then he makes the statement that do not even eat with someone who claims to be a brother but is not living this thing out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So, so often what we've done in the church is we have treated people outside the church as a oh, wicked, nasty, rotten, I don't even have anything to do with you. And then the people within the church <clears throat> that hold on to our doctrines and that are in our little tribes and circles, we kind of just turn a blind eye to their sin because, you know, they look like us and smell like us and vote like us and dress like us. And actually the opposite is supposed to be true. We're yeah. supposed to hold the people that are within the body of Christ to a very high standard of holiness. Mm-hmm. And the people that are outside the body of Christ, we're supposed to, man, like love them and get dinner with them and hang out with them and, you know, show them Christ through our lives. And, um, I think because yeah. we've not done that, that's caused people to see the inconsistencies there and that's caused them to go, well, you know, maybe maybe there's something to this whole thing of those parts of the Bible not being true because all I've seen them is just hammers to hit people over the head and abuse people. And and really holiness and biblical holiness, is it's a beautiful thing to call somebody to that. It's not an oppressive mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Here it is. Uh, yeah, it's 1 Corinthians 5, 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, mm. not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But mm. now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother, bears the name of brother, mm. if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. But purge the evil person from among you. Yeah. Yeah, so basically, if you're a member of my church, and I know that you're cheating on your wife, Mm Mm-hmm. And you know that I know, and I know that I know, of course I know that I know, <clears throat> uh, because I know. And um, you're like, hey, let's hang out. And I'm like, dude, you're living in a way that's sinful. And you're like, man, but come on, like I've, I've asked Jesus to forgive me. I've prayed the sinner's prayer, like I'm, I'm still good. And I'm like, no, you bear the name brother, mm-hmm. and you're still living in the sin. And you don't want to repent. You don't want to break it off. You don't want to get help and healing from this. Then the Bible says, like, we we are not supposed to have these close bonds of Christian fellowship because there is not repentance and there's there is inconsistency between what it is we're claiming to believe and how it is we're actually living. Mm-hmm. And so real love, according to the Bible, is saying, I love you so much that I'm not going to eat with you because I love you enough to tell you you need to repent of this sin because it's going to destroy you. Yeah. That's love according to the Bible. It is not just saying, hey, Gabe, man, you know what? That, that's an alternative lifestyle. And I know that really makes you feel fulfilled going out and cheating on your wife. So, brother, I just love you where you're at, man. I don't understand it, but I just love you. Um, that's not love, man. No, absolutely not. It's not biblical love. Mm-mm. Well, the next attribute of this movement, and this is kind of the last one we'll end on, is, is this movement 
takes the heart of the gospel and it shifts the heart of the gospel message from sin and redemption to social justice. So like we said earlier, justice is a central concern of the scriptures, and that certainly should be our concern as disciples. But this idea of social justice, just that word social justice, that's a, that's a relatively new term. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not found in the Bible. Um, now, it, it's a great term if we get to define what that means, mm-hmm. if that means treating people fairly, if that means fighting racism, standing for life. But often that term social justice means not much more than just a political ideology mm-hmm. that is largely disconnected from biblical justice. And so it tends to be that if you buy into social justice, you have to, it's like a false dichotomy. Either you teach the gospel message that you need to repent of your sins and put your hope and faith and trust in Jesus, or you need to be a social justice warrior. (laughs) Those are your two Mm -hmm. options, right? And if you focus on being a social justice warrior, you're not going to talk about the gospel. Yeah. And so the idea and the vision is that the gospel is, God working through us to bring about utopia through whatever state that we live in, which like you and I said, that's, that's more of a, uh, almost a socialist and Marxist ideology at work. Yeah, definitely. Definitely is. But the, the Bible's vision of, of justice is raising us into a new heaven and a new earth and raising us up to be citizens of that new kingdom. And, this world is passing away. (laughs) The governments and the systems of this world is passing away. And certainly we have a responsibility here now in them, but like, man, when, when social justice replaces the gospel, you don't get the gospel and you really don't get justice. You, you, You get basically a whole movement of people that hinge themselves to a political party or a political ideology, but claim that they're doing it in the name of God, but really what they're doing is they're, they're, they're just attached to a political movement or they're attached to a political ideology. Mm-hmm. And I think you see this most profoundly in the whole idea of the pro-life movement. So mm-hmm. true biblical justice is being pro-life, but mm-hmm. it's so ironic to me that the people, well, let's just talk about that. It's pro-life because the Bible talks so often about life beginning at conception. Mm-hmm. that you knit me together in my mother's womb, that before I was born, you called me. That was the call to the prophet Jeremiah. So like all through the scripture, it's so obvious that the human life begins in the womb. But progressives say, I'm all about social justice, but I'm also pro-abortion. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah. wait a second, where do you, that's inconsistent with what you're claiming. You're claiming the Bible is informing your views of social justice. And yet with this one issue, you go with what your political party is teaching. How does that work? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, you, you married yourself to a political ideology that, um, you know, I, I really encourage people who are listening, maybe you're drawn to social justice and the, the, the mantra of social justice as it's presented, um, in our day and age in, in the United States of America. If you're drawn to that, I want you to really study out, um, the tenets of, of Karl Marx and Marxism and, uh, you know, the, the idea of, what he calls uh, dialectical materialism, that there always has to be these two opposing ends of a spectrum. And when you get this dichotomy, when you get a binary conflict like that, like black versus white, rich versus poor, left versus right, 
um, you keep, you can, the list goes on when you have that and you can, um, encourage that and grow that within a people group, that's the breeding ground for his ideas, for Marxist mm. ideas. And I mean, so, so study that, but then go look at how Marxism plays out when countries attempt to implement it in a fallen and sinful world. It's just not good. And I know, I know Karl Marx meant well, but the guy never lived long enough to see his ideas implemented. And um, they were just catastrophic in people groups. So, I mean, there's more death. You can add all the wars up in, the, I think, the 20, 21st century, and we still don't equal the amount of death that Marxism brought um, humanity. Um, mm. So it's it just be really careful because I think that's what social justice tries to do is it tries to pit people groups against each other. To his, and it, at the same time, it's like they're trying to reconcile people groups. But, um, you know, we, we got to be careful that we're, we're, we're not buying into an ideology um, that is historically proven to be catastrophic uh, while thinking we're doing the right thing. I think that's... that's um, so would you call it di- dialectical... Say that word again. Um, dial- if I'm not mistaken, dialectical materialism. Dialectical um, materialism. That's yeah, so interesting. Basically, you have the haves and you have the have-nots. You have yeah. the bourgeoisie and you have the proletariat. Well, well, we see that. I mean, gosh, like it's really this... The rhetoric of this election from the side of the Democratic Party is, you know, the people that are in positions of power that are oppressing and the people that are mm-hmm. not that are being oppressed. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so th- that's the whole mantra and the na- narrative that has been peddled to us of why we should vote for a certain candidate is because, you know, you're being oppressed. And mm-hmm. so you need to be empowered. You need to be liberated. Right. <laughs> um it's just interesting how that works, man. So Gabe, as we end, like, um, I just want to share kind of a, uh, parting thought about kind of what David Young, the guy who wrote this book that kind of got me thinking about this. He says this statement, I think this is very interesting. He says that progressive Christianity is a halfway house to flat out secularism. In other words, um, if you keep going down this path, you're going to get to a point where you realize you don't really need Christianity anymore. Mm -hmm. And to prove his point, he talks about mainline denominations who have accepted these tenets and who have accepted um, redefining the Bible and redefining historic Orthodox terms. And he talks about them. And I'm just going to read it. He talks about Episcopalianism which was once a standard for American religion, cannot get a million people to attend its services on any given Sunday. Several years back, the Episcopal Church was down to sponsoring only 25 foreign missionaries worldwide. Now there are more lesbians in America than there are Episcopalians. Wow, that's interesting. The Presbyterian Church USA, one of the most important denominations in America at one time, is also down to a million attendees on any given Sunday. In 2017 alone, they lost 67,000 of their 1.5 million remaining members. Uh, Disciples of Christ churches uh, are now fewer than 300,000 attendees left. The United Church of Christ is down to less than half a million. At one point, a third of all Americans were Methodist. But today, the United Methodist Church can barely get 1% of Americans, that's 3 million, in its doors. And as far back as 98, Thomas Rees reported that a third of Methodist churches in the U.S. had not performed a single baptism in a year. Wow. 
1995 study found that Methodist Church has been losing 1,000 members each week for the past 30 years. The Unitarian Universalist Association can barely get 100,000 people in its Sunday services <laughs> all across the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, to give you a, a – more people are, will attend a Alabama Crimson Tide football game on a Saturday than the entire corpus of Unitarian Universal Association churches the next day. And it's mm-hmm. no wonder one UUA leader recently noted more than half of the denomination's members are atheist. <laughs> wow. How does so, that work? Yeah, I don't know. So here's basically what it is. Like if 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 this has uh, no power in your life because God is essentially someone that's there to make you feel better and it turns into like this weird group therapy thing where you get to define what the Bible says and you get to define what you feel is right, you don't need God because you, you, are, you are your own God. And so yeah, why do you, why do you need to get out of bed on a Sunday morning to go to a church? You don't need exactly. it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's humanism at, at its heart. It's, that's just, we are our savior. If we can just collectively, you know, make enough effort, uh, get on all on the same page, we'll, we'll fix all of our woes. You know, mm-hmm. all this, all the sins of our society can be reversed through our efforts. And that is, that is humanism. And that's dangerous. It's very unbiblical because, um, our sins and our woes, can be atoned for and healed and um, made right only by the grace of God through the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. Yeah. There's no effort of our own whatsoever. Amen. So it's, it's interesting. Hey, so as we close, uh, what would you say to someone that comes to you and they are beginning to think about the Christian faith Um in line with kind of this movement. So they come to you and they're like, Gabe, I, I just really struggle with scripture. I feel like we've not treated gay people equitably. I see so much injustice in the world around me. And I, I don't know if I really believe in these doctrines. Like I've been taught, like, what do you say to somebody that is being tempted towards aligning with this movement? What would your encouragement to them be? Um, well, to spend a lot more time with me have, have lunch with me. Let's talk about it. Let's pray about it. Um, and let's, let's challenge it. Let's go through and and poke holes in it and see if we can. And, um, I would look at the first century sect known as the way as the book of Acts calls it and talk about how many of these people took their faith to their graves because what they saw was completely undeniable. The miracles Mm. that they witnessed and the mighty moves of the Holy Spirit that witnessed were completely undeniable that they were willing to take it to their graves. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I would look at that. I would look at if you, what does progressive mean, you know, in this context? Because when I see the word progressive, I'm trying to progress towards being a better disciple and conforming my life around Scripture and the Scripture made flesh that dwelt among us. But um, who gets to define progress in this context? Where does it take you? What's the end game? Um, I guess is a kind of questions that I would want to ask this person if hmm. they were if they were coming to me about this. What yeah. is what is progress in your book? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think the line that I've found myself using when somebody comes to me with some of these concerns and thoughts is always, you know, and it usually starts with scripture. You know, I don't feel like the scriptures are true or whatever. 
my, my thought is, okay, by whose standard are you, um, are you choosing to learn what it means to submit and surrender your life to Christ? And usually when you say phrases like that, that kind of just blows the conversation to a whole nother level. It's like, well, wait a second, submit and surrender my life to Christ. What are you talking about? And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's the call that we're supposed to do to bow our knee before him. He's the King, not us. So who's informing you of what that looks like if it's not the Bible? Mm. And usually you get an answer like my feelings. Okay. Yeah. So how do you, <laughs> like, is it really, are your feelings really encouraging you to surrender and submit to Christ or are your feelings basically helping you justify you being in charge? So we've got to have a standard somewhere. Mm-hmm. And if the standard becomes essentially whatever the world says is love, whatever the world says is equity, whatever the world says is justice, man, we're essentially becoming adulterers and and we're falling in love with the systems of the world and we're perverting the gospel message in the heart of what we're called to be as Christians to try to look just like the world. And and that's really sad. Well, it takes us to moral relativism and that doesn't end well. Mm-mm. I guess I could take the person down that road too and say, where, is, where does this take us as a society? If we if we abandon the moral absolutes of God's word, um, where does that lead us? Um, but I like this, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 9 and 10. It says, this is a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, stop seeing. And they say to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right but instead speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions for us, leave the way, turn aside from the path. We don't want to hear any more about the Holy One of Israel. Hmm. (laughs) Golly, man. That's us in a nutshell, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Last thing I'll end us with, there's a quote that um, I was reminded of as I was reading this book by a guy named Malcolm Muggridge which his life story is fascinating. Um, And I believe that David Young talks about Malcolm Mudridge in this book. But if you don't know who he is, he was an incredible uh, journalist in the 20th century that had a radical conversion. And he was um, very much caught up in the left and socialism and all that stuff. And then God got a hold of his heart and he wrote about kind of how Western society is trying to um, liberate ourselves and trying to, you know, progress down this road of, uh, you know, utopia, but we're really just by excluding God, we're killing ourselves. And so he, he had this statement. He said, so the final conclusion would surely be that whereas other civilizations have been brought down by attacks of barbarians from without, ours had the unique distinction of training its own destroyers at its own educational institutions and then providing them with facilities for propagating their destructive ideology far and wide, all at the public expense. Thus did Western man decide to abolish himself, creating his own boredom out of his own affluence, his own vulnerability out of his own strength, his own impotence out of his own erotomania, himself blowing the trumpet that brought down the walls of his own city tumbling down, and having convinced himself that he was too numerous, labored with pill and scalpel and syringe to make himself fewer, until at last, having educated himself into imbecility, (laughs) I love Mm. that line, 
When polluted and drugged himself into stupefaction, he killed over a weary, battered old brontosaurus and became extinct. Hmm. And yeah. I read that, and I go, this is what this movement is doing to the Christian faith. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, Scripture, New Testament, is full of warnings of people coming into the, the church and spreading false doctrine. Uh, I mean, just to read one here, Second Timothy 4, 3. There will come a time when they will not endure sound teaching, but according to their own desires, having an itching ear, they will gather around them teachers that will suit themselves. Mm. I mean, it's, it's just so full of warnings. It's just one of many. Yeah. If Paul gives, be careful. People are going to depart. People are going to become lawless. People are going to, you know, say, stop prophesying. They're going to heap up for themselves teachers who are just, you know, itch, you know, just scratching the little itching ears. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got to c- cling to the word of truth. Um, even if it, even if it leads us to our graves, you know, we've got yeah. to do that because that, that is, that is a light. That is, um, the way of life. That is, um, the tree of life. Yeah. Um, but that ultimately is, is, is our ticket to the kingdom. When we stand before the throne of judgment, that's, you know, what it all boils down to is, um, I, I really believe I'm going to stand before a judge hmm. and that judge is just and righteous and perfect. And he's going to ask me, you know, what did you do with the time I gave you? And were you obedient? Did you, did you, um, bind up other people's wounds? Did you share my good news? And, um, did you, did you bury the talent I gave you, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to stand before that judge. So, I mean, ultimately I'm going, I'm going to err on the side of, of obedience. I'm going to err yeah. on the side of, 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 you know, like you said, orthodox, biblical, uh, Christianity, knowing it, where I'm at with that. And that's going to take a significant amount of boldness in the years to come. Mm-hmm, and, I, and honestly, this, this, this is going to sound super harsh, but I think a lot of reasons why people fall into progressive Christianity is because at their core, they're cowards mm. and they want to be accepted by the world. But the Bible says you can't. If you want to follow Jesus, you, you like friendship with the world is enmity to God. Like you can't do it, man. You're trying to make your faith so contextualized that everybody's going to love you and like you. And it's just not possible. You can't. Like if you're preaching the gospel message, there's going to be some people that hate you because of it. But if you're not okay with that because you want everybody to love you, you're essentially guilty of cowardice. And the Bible says in the book of Revelation that those who will not be allowed entrance into the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, on that list is first off with the cowardly. Hmm. So those who are too afraid to stand for the truth of Jesus Christ were to be the ones that will not be in the new creation and the new Jerusalem because they caved because the world said, you're full of hatred, you're full of intolerance, and you're telling us how to live our lives and we don't like you. And so the cowards are the ones that bend and twist this sacred truth to fit modern sensibilities. And that's cowardice, and God's going to judge that cowardice. And that should be a sobering reminder for us to not play fast and loose with the truth of God's word. Thanks. Yikes. Yeah. What a way to end it. Golly. Yeah. yeah. Well, Gabe, what do, you, what do you think, man? You think we tackled this topic uh, in an accurate way? Oh, we we attempted to. I, this topic is going to come up over and over again, I'm sure, in future episodes. And, and 
yeah, I hope this has been beneficial to people, maybe giving you some tools to to combat this or think about it. Maybe you're you're tempted by this uh, doctrine, but yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. It's a really big topic. Yeah. Well, and there's a way to love people and love God and um, still stand for truth. So it's not exclusive. It doesn't, it's, it's not a choice between either um, you love truth and you hate people or you love people and hate truth. There's a way to do both. You can love truth and love people. Mm-hmm. So maybe, Absolutely. maybe we should spend some time in future episodes talking about how do you, how do you still hold to the truth and at the same time still love people different from you. But anyway, fleshing that out is good, but well, cool. Well, Gabe, have a good rest of your day, friendo, friend of friends. Yeah. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you guys so much for listening wherever you're at. Email us if you have any questions or we'd love to hear from you guys. And if you have any ideas on future topics or questions like that, we'd love to hear some feedback. Absolutely. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a share, leave us a review, or send us an email at beardsandbiblepodcast at gmail.com.